0: Hello there and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. This is a podcast series that looks at the Crusades from the Byzantine angle. In previous episodes, we've heard about how the collapse of Byzantium led to the First Crusade. In the last episode, the Crusaders captured the great city of Antioch from the Turks – after a long and traumatic siege, during which they'd had to defeat three Turkish armies sent against them. Now, just at the moment of victory, when Jerusalem finally seemed within reach, they encounter a new and unexpected problem. As before, I'll read extracts from my book called The Byzantine World War by me, Nick Holmes, which was published last year in 2019, and is also just out in audiobook if you want to check it out at Amazon. So, let's go. Hope you enjoy it. In July 1098, after the long and exhausting siege of Antioch, it looked as if Bohemond's claim that he should be granted Antioch would break the crusade apart. The disagreement was over whether Antioch should be returned to Byzantium or not. Bohemond's argument was that the agreement made with the Emperor Alexius in Constantinople to return Byzantine cities captured by the crusaders had been nullified by the emperor's apparent abandonment of the crusaders. The other crusaders couldn't deny that there was much truth in Bohemond's claim. So, why had Alexius in effect abandoned the crusaders? Well, for certain, he was influenced by several senior crusaders who had themselves abandoned the siege of Antioch and returned home. Most prominent of these was Stephen of Blois. Meeting Alexius on his return journey, Stephen had told him that the crusade was doomed. This seems to have made a considerable impact on Alexius, who ordered his general Taticius to leave Antioch in the spring of 1098, before the emir Caboga's advance on the city. While there is some evidence that Taticius' departure was also prompted by his work organising provisions for the Crusaders from Byzantium-controlled Cyprus, this was in effect the point when Alexius gave up on the Crusaders. In retrospect, it can be seen that this was a huge mistake. By writing off the Crusaders, Alexius missed a golden opportunity to recover Antioch for himself. But it shouldn't be forgotten that he had already benefited from the Crusaders' victory at Dorileon, which had allowed the Byzantine army and navy to recover the Aegean islands and cities along the eastern Aegean coast, which were previously controlled by the extremely dangerous Turkish emir Chaka. The Crusaders' acrimonious dispute meant that in the last months of 1098, it looked as if the first crusade would disintegrate. Antioch was divided between the crusaders, each lord holding part of the city, with Bohemond commanding the most strategically important part, the citadel. Morale plummeted. Then plague, almost certainly typhoid, broke out in the city, probably due to the large number of hastily buried corpses, The Crusaders also started to raid the Syrian towns outside Antioch to obtain supplies, but this didn't reunite them. Indeed, the stand-off between Beaumont and Raymond of Toulouse was extended into the Syrian plain, where the town of Marat was captured with extreme brutality and the slaughter of its Muslim inhabitants, only to be divided up between the opposing soldiers of Beaumont and Raymond. With Bohemond so intransigent, it was finally Raymond who decided that it would serve his interests best to capture Jerusalem, even if it meant abandoning Antioch to Bohemond. Joined by Robert of Normandy, in January 1099, he marched south. Although Godfrey of Bouillon and Robert of Flanders didn't join him, The initial advance was fairly easy. The reason for this was that with the fading of Seljuk authority in Syria, many towns to the south of Antioch were ruled by Arab emirs who disliked the Seljuk Turks as much as they did the Crusaders and weren't sorry to hear of the emir Kerboga's defeat. Consequently, the Arab cities of Scheizar, Homs and Tripoli all offered tribute to Raymond rather than face attack. But this changed when Raymond settled down to besiege the coastal fortress of Arca. Strongly defended, his soldiers simply couldn't storm its walls. It looked as if the crusade had stalled yet again. But while Beaumont stayed resolutely in Antioch, the other crusader leaders, Godfrey of Bouillon and Robert of Flanders, decided to join Raymond. Part of the reason for this was the news that the Seljuks were massing for another attack, although in fact this proved to be false since the Seljuk Sultan Bekiruk was too preoccupied with events in the eastern side of his crumbling empire to care too much about the Crusaders' victories. But there was a more genuine reason for urgency – News reached the Crusaders that the Fatimids had taken Jerusalem from the Seljuks. Being the arch-rivals of the Seljuks, the Fatimids had at first been seen by the Crusaders as potential allies. Indeed, a Crusader embassy had even been sent to Cairo at Byzantine instigation in 1097, looking for cooperation against the Seljuks in Syria. Now this returned with an intransigent message from the Fatimid leader, al-Afdal. He said that Jerusalem would stay in Fatimid hands. An offer was made that the Crusaders could visit the city in peace, but if they wanted to take Jerusalem, it was clear that the Crusaders would now need to fight a major new enemy, the Fatimid Caliphate. Leaving Beaumont in Antioch, the rest of the Crusaders decided to advance on Jerusalem and take it quickly. With Arca still holding out, Raymond abandoned the siege. In May 1099, the Crusaders marched at speed towards Jerusalem, fearful that Fatimid reinforcements would soon arrive to defend the city with renewed vigour and confidence caused by the excitement that after three years they were finally closing in on their aim of capturing Jerusalem. They skilfully bypassed the Arab strongholds at Tyre and Acre, and on the 7th of June, Jerusalem finally came into view. Some crusaders believed that they had reached a potential apocalypse, and that if they captured the city, the heavens would open and paradise would descend. But while many wept with joy, the sight before them was also deeply intimidating, for Jerusalem had massive fortifications, nearly four kilometres long. Inside the city was a sizable Fatimid garrison, maybe 5,000 strong, and the crusader army had shrunk to only some 1,300 knights and 12,000 infantry, and it also lacked Bohemond, its most skillful commander. However, the arrival of six Genoese ships at Jaffa, with much-needed reinforcements, provided a welcome boost. With news that a large Fatimid army was within 15 days march away, the Crusaders knew that they didn't have much time. They quickly decided on a plan of attack that would prove to be tactically brilliant. Helped by the newly arrived Genoese, who included many carpenters, they rapidly constructed two assault towers, one of which could be dismantled and then reassembled relatively fast. To confuse the defenders, this was moved overnight and reassembled in a different location to the north of the city. At the same time, To the south of the city, the second assault tower was pushed towards the walls with sufficient troops to look as if it was the main attacking force. The deception worked, and the majority of the Fatimid defenders rushed to repulse the attack from the south. Meanwhile, the Crusaders stepped up their attack with the newly assembled assault tower at the opposite end of the city. A huge battering ram was used to make a breach in the curtain wall, and the tower was dragged right up to the main wall. Although the Fatimids used Greek fire, the Crusaders had been warned about this by local Christians and had a good supply of vinegar to put it out, since Greek fire was petrol-based and couldn't be put out with water, although vinegar was very effective. With the wooden sections of the main wall alight, probably due to the use of the Greek fire, and with smoke billowing around him, Ludolf of Tournai established his place in history by being the first crusader to step onto the walls of Jerusalem. He and the other crusaders were able to cut loose some of the hide-covered wattles, protecting their assault tower, and use them as a bridge onto the city ramparts. Behind Ludolf came a stream of knights, including Godfrey of Bouillon. Once this breach was achieved, the defence of Jerusalem collapsed. Although the Fatimid garrison had succeeded in defeating the diversionary attack to the south, news spread rapidly that the Crusaders had taken the northern walls and the defenders abandoned the walls to take up stands in various parts of the city from the Temple Mount to the Citadel. Very few prisoners were taken and the Crusaders indulged in an orgy of slaughter – that has shocked and horrified future generations. As one eyewitness recounted, quote, Some of the pagans were mercifully beheaded, others pierced by arrows, plunged from towers, and yet others, tortured for a long time, were burned to death in searing flames. Piles of heads, hands and feet lay in the houses and streets, and men and knights were running to and fro over the corpses. End quote. The Crusaders showed a disturbing mix of emotions in the sack of Jerusalem. These were bloodlust, greed, and then piety. After they had slaughtered almost the entire Muslim community, many of the poorer Crusaders, like the foot soldiers and squires, cut open the corpses, searching for jewels, swallowed, by their unlikely victims. Then, still covered in blood, the Crusader leaders gathered to worship in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was the Church containing the two holiest sites in the Christian religion, the site of Christ's crucifixion at a place known as Calvary or Golgotha, as well as his empty tomb, where he is said to have been buried and resurrected. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre still stands today, much the same as it was when the Crusaders entered it nearly 1,000 years ago. Perhaps ironically, the original Roman Church had been restored by the Byzantines at huge expense in 1048 as part of a growing rapprochement with the Fatimids. While the streets of Jerusalem ran red with blood, one medieval chronicler has left us with an insight into the conflicting emotions that drove the Crusaders. He describes the humility and piety shown by Godfrey of Bouillon. Abstaining from the slaughter that raged in the city and taking only three of his men, Godfrey took off his armour and his shoes and went barefoot outside the city walls so that he could enter the city in humility through the gate that looks out on the Mount of Olives. Continuing barefoot and without any weapons, he walked into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where he cried and prayed and gave thanks to God for being granted his greatest wish to see the sepulchre of Jesus Christ. With the capture of Jerusalem, the First Crusade had achieved its objective. But there was one more battle to be fought, for a large Fatimid army, maybe 20,000 strong, was marching straight towards the city. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NamoresWellbeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Let's go. With very little time to lose, Godfrey of Bouillon was elected leader of the Crusaders. So as not to offend the democratic spirit of the Crusade, he rejected the grand title of King of Jerusalem and adopted the more humble one of Advocate of the Holy Sepulchre. With the Fatimids nearing the city, the Crusader leaders decided not to wait for them in Jerusalem, but to march out to meet them in pitched battle. This was a brave decision, since with perhaps only some 1,200 knights and 9,000 infantry still capable of combat, they were outnumbered two to one. But the Fatimid army was also very different from the Turkish armies they'd previously encountered, Predominantly Egyptian and Arab, it had a large number of Egyptian infantry, who were levies of pretty doubtful quality. More formidable were the Ghulam cavalry, who formed a standard part of medieval Muslim armies, together with the Berber and Bedouin tribesmen, and an entirely new type of enemy for the Crusaders, in the form of Ethiopian infantry, wielding huge war flails, which were metal spikes on long chains and were capable of bringing down both horse and rider. The Crusaders knew that if they were defeated, Jerusalem would fall back into Muslim hands. It was a do-or-die moment, as so many had been in the history of the First Crusade. So on the 12th of August, the two armies met outside the Fatimid-held port of Ascalon. The sources differ in their accounts of the battle, but most say that the Crusaders launched a surprise attack on the Egyptian army. Attacking at dawn, they arranged themselves in a line of battle with Godfrey on the left wing, while the centre was packed with Norman and Frankish knights, who were the elite of the army, led by Robert of Normandy, Robert of Flanders and Tancred of Hauteville, Beaumont's nephew. As the sun glinted on the horizon, they advanced towards the Fatimid army and broke into a gallop, spears and lances raised. Meanwhile, in the Egyptian camp, Al-Afdal was not expecting an attack. Knowing that he outnumbered the crusaders, his focus was instead on laying siege to Jerusalem, and he was more preoccupied with the construction of siege engines than how to face the crusaders in a pitched battle. Because of this, on that morning, his army had failed to post sufficient scouts to warn of the approaching enemy. As the army of Egyptians, Arabs and Ethiopians began to stir, waking up to go about their morning chores, they heard the sound of hooves pounding the ground in the distance. Suddenly, they realised that a host of horsemen was galloping straight towards them. There was panic, Men shouted and screamed at each other. The Egyptian camp erupted into an ant's nest of activity. The Arabs and Ghulams rushed to their horses, and the Egyptian infantry grabbed their weapons. Meanwhile, the sound of hooves grew louder and louder, quickening their pace, The Crusaders broke into a charge. Many were still living on the adrenaline rush of religious fervour, convinced that the capture of Jerusalem would bring an apocalypse and the defeat of the infidel throughout the entire world. Their confidence knew no bounds as they charged towards the Egyptian army in the early morning sun. Meanwhile, Al-Afdal was still in a state of shock that his army was under attack. He surrounded himself with his heavy Ghulam cavalry and retreated to the rear of the camp, ordering the Egyptian levies to form a battle line with the Ethiopians and Bedouin tribesmen. There were no defences to the Egyptian camp, no palisades, no moats or tripwires. Instead, the ground lay wide open and the Fatimid army waited for the crusader storm to hit them. Yelling their battle cries, the Normans and Franks dug spurs into their horses' flanks to deliver the most powerful cavalry charge known in the medieval world. The crusaders crashed straight into the mass of Egyptian infantry. The Egyptians' wicker shields splintered under the blows of iron swords. Egyptians, Arabs and Ethiopians were knocked aside, struck down with swords or spitted on spears like wild boar. The ironclad Normans rode in amongst the tumult of men, slashing and hacking with their swords. Behind them came the Christian foot soldiers running after the knights ready to finish off the survivors. It was then that Robert of Normandy found a place in the minstrel's tales. Robert was the eldest son of King William the Conqueror, and so far had proved a failure in life. Bequeathed Normandy by his father while his brother William II ruled England, he'd been ousted by his brother and left Normandy in disgrace. When he heard of the First Crusade, he turned to it to find a new purpose to his life. Held in low regard by his peers, It was at the Battle of Ascalon that he would earn his redemption. Having been at the forefront of the Crusader onslaught, Robert saw a tall pole gleaming in the centre of the Egyptian camp surrounded by Ghulam cavalry. Something told him that it must be Al-Afdal's standard, and so he called the Normans to charge the Ghulam surrounding it. In a frenzy, the Normans fell upon the gulams, and Robert dealt the standard-bearer a crunching blow with his sword. As the man fell, Robert grabbed the standard, a tall, solid silver pole with a golden apple at its top, and cried out that God had delivered victory. Seeing al standard in crusader hands, panic seized the entire Egyptian army. It disintegrated, with many running to the sea pursued by Raymond of Toulouse, where they couldn't escape and drowned. Others tried to flee to the safety of the fortress at Ascalon, but were caught in its narrow entrance by the sheer weight of numbers. As one crusader grimly commented, "...our men cut them to pieces as one slaughters cattle." For the meat market. Al Afdal himself just succeeded in escaping into the fortress at Ascalon and managed to return to Egypt. But he was horrified at the scale of his defeat and the destruction of his army. This was the last battle of the First Crusade and one of its greatest victories. The Crusaders had proved invincible they had shattered Seljuk and Fatimid armies, almost always numerically superior. Although in later centuries their brutality would attract opprobrium, in their own age they were the greatest of all heroes. Just as Homer's Iliad held audiences spellbound over innumerable evenings in the ancient world, so medieval listeners never tired of hearing of the bravery of Bohemond and the piety of Godfrey of Bouillon. The story of the First Crusade became a legend recounted in rapture from the campfires of peasants to the castles of kings. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd be hugely grateful if you left a rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere since it helps so much to promote the podcast to more listeners. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll start a whole new era for the Crusaders as they set up their own kingdoms and states in the Holy Land.